0: You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit enduringword.com. Well, good afternoon, everybody. My name is David Guzik, and I'm so pleased that you could join me today for our Thursday live question and answer program. What we do whenever we can, whenever I'm in town and am and then after that lead question, uh, we take whatever questions come in on our live chat here this afternoon. We have a moderator named Devin. He's part of our Enduring Word team. Devin will be happy to answer Uh, or interact with you and get the questions organized and forward them to me. So again, very, very pleased that you could join us here this afternoon. So our lead question here starts off with this very simple but important question that comes to us from someone who has been a user of our commentary here in uh, India. I have a written commentary on the entire Bible that you can find at EnduringWord.com. And that particular commentary is used by a lot of people all over the world. And uh, we think that it's something that's helpful for a lot of people. At least that's kind of the uh, the, uh, impression that we get from a lot of folks. And so we're very pleased just to spend some time here and answer questions that come to us from the commentary. Let me read to you uh, the question that comes from Tarish, our reader from India. This is what he says. Hi, my name is Tarish and I am from India. Actually, I'm a big fan of your website. Whenever I read the Holy Bible and have some doubt, I used to refer to your website since it contains a detailed description of each verse. Ever since I started reading the Bible, I have a big doubt in my mind that whether Jesus Christ is the real God who incarnated as a human to earth. Is Jesus Christ and the God who created this universe, we call him Yahweh, the same? Because Jesus never claimed that he is God and that all people should worship him. Then why do we worship Jesus Christ as God? Could you please clear my doubt on this matter? Well. Teresh, let me say, first of all, thank you very much for your question. Uh, I'm, of course, delighted to bring an answer to an email that comes to us from a reader of the commentary from India. One of the things I most enjoy in this ministry that God has given me, having to do with the YouTube channel and, of course, the broader ministry that I have with the Bible commentary on EnduringWord.com and then also uh, the Blue Letter Bible is i'm very pleased that it's a global ministry that we're reaching people all over the world and so it's a delight to interact with you here at this time on this terrace so terrace your question is is jesus truly god and let me just give you the most straightforward answer that i can <laughs> yes jesus is god he was god and he will always be god now i understand That this is a remarkable teaching, that that the man Jesus of Nazareth, because we know this. We know this from the Bible. We also know it from secular history, that there was a man known as Jesus of Nazareth who walked this earth some 2,000 years ago. The teaching of the Bible and the teaching of Christianity is plainly that that man, Jesus of Nazareth, was really God In human flesh now I want to emphasize just here at the beginning that he was also a man when we say that Jesus was and is God we're not trying to take anything away from his deity the the Bible tells us plainly here in first Timothy chapter 2 verse 5 for there is one God and one mediator between God and men the man Christ Jesus again that's first Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. So what we're just trying to emphasize with that is that Jesus is truly God and truly man. You, You see, here's the simple point, that at some point in time, the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, he added humanity to his deity in an event we know as the Incarnation. So th- that's the biblical teaching. So le- let me just walk you through, Tarish, since you asked, some of these verses in the Bible that speak to us of the uh, deity of Jesus Christ. I- I'm going to focus now on talking about the deity of Jesus Christ, but I just want to say that at the beginning, that in talking about the deity of Jesus, we're not trying to deny or even de-emphasize his humanity. Both are true. But but you asked a question about the deity of Jesus Christ. Is Jesus God Yes, Jesus Christ is fully God, truly God. And let me give you several reasons why, biblically speaking. First of all, Jesus Christ has all the attributes of deity. In other words, commonly, we speak of God having at least five essential attributes. I'm not trying to say that that encompasses everything about God, but but these are at least five essential attributes of God. He has eternity omnipresence, omniscience, omnipotence, and immutability. So first of all, God is eternal. And we just have to ask ourselves, if Jesus Christ is God, then he should be eternal as well. Let me tell you, the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ is eternal. He said himself that he was before Abraham The Bible tells us that he was before the world was created. Jesus spoke those words from his own mouth in John chapter 17. He existed in the beginning. In other words, before time ever began. And in one of my favorite scriptures, speaking of the eternal nature of Jesus, uh, Micah chapter five, verse two, where it says, but you Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me, the one to be the ruler of Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. In other words, that idea in the original Hebrew is something like this, from the vanishing point. In other words, Jesus Christ has come from everlasting. He is eternal God. Speaking of in the past perspective, but then also in the future, because he continues forever. So he's eternal. Number two, he is omnipresent. While Jesus Christ was on earth, he was also in heaven in some sense. And enthroned in heaven now, he still has presence on this earth. Let me show you a scripture that speaks of this. And what we're talking about here is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, which says this, and he, now in the context, that's God the Father, and he put all things under his, the his there refers to Jesus, God the Son, under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of the fullness of him. Again, Jesus, who fills all in all. That's a powerful statement of the omnipresence of Jesus Christ. He fills all in all. He is everywhere. So Jesus is eternal. He's omnipresent but he is also omniscient. In other words, Jesus Christ knows all things. In him, as it says here in Colossians chapter 2, verse 3, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In other words, all. Everything that can be known is known by Jesus Christ. He is omniscient. He shares this feature of deity. So eternal omnipresent uh, om- omniscient but not only that Jesus Christ is also omnipotent he has all power again there's many scriptures we could refer to let me just point you to one John chapter 5 verse 19 in that particular passage we read this then Jesus answered and said to them most assuredly I say to you the son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the father do for whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. Friend, do you understand what that's saying there? It's telling us that anything God the Father can do, God the Son also does, which is a remarkable and radical statement. Anything God the Father can do, God the Son also does. That speaks to the omnipotence of God the Father. So eternal, Omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent. The next aspect of the deity of God, uh, God's deity, the, the, the nature of his deity that, that applies to Jesus Christ is that he is immutable. Now, immutable is a word that just simply means unchanging. Jesus Christ is unchanging in his plans, in his promises, and his purposes. Now, it's true, God the Son has manifested or shown himself in different ways. Uh, In other words, there was a time when he did not have humanity added to his deity, and he showed himself as being human. But his essential being and his deity has never changed, and it will never change, as the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So, do you see in a very powerful way here, we see that Jesus Christ shares all these aspects of deity. He is eternal, he's omnipresent, he's omniscient, he's omnipotent, he's immutable. That's the fifth. Jesus Christ is also obviously the creator of all things. You mentioned that, Tarish, in your question. You 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 said, Well, is Jesus truly the creator? Look at what it says in John chapter 1, verse 3. All things were made through him and without him, nothing was made that was made. In addition, we know that Jesus Christ has the authority to forgive sins as God forgives sins. We find that in Matthew chapter nine, verse six. We know that Jesus will raise the dead at the end of time. He makes that claim in John chapter five, verse 25. And we know as well that they have so many New Testament references that take specific Old Testament references to Yahweh and they apply them to Jesus Christ. Now, what do I specifically mean by that? Well, it's pretty simple if you just take this idea that uh, Yahweh, the Old Testament says, is the creator. That's in Psalm 102. And Hebrews chapter 1 takes that same passage and applies it to Jesus and says that Jesus is the creator. In Isaiah chapter 6, it says that Isaiah saw Yahweh. In John chapter 12, it says that Isaiah saw Jesus in that same passage. In Isaiah chapter 40, it says that Yahweh has a forerunner. In Matthew chapter 3, it takes that same passage and says that Jesus has a forerunner. So I could go on and I'm going to put that particular section in the show notes because I think it's very powerful that it explains to us by taking these Old Testament passages that apply to Yahweh and making them specifically apply to Jesus Christ, the New Testament is telling us that Jesus is Yahweh. And then finally, I'll just mention this and we'll include it in the show notes that Jesus Christ referred to himself in words and phrases that belong to God alone. Therese, you said that Jesus never said that he is God, but actually, I want you to, he did say it many times. Jesus said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. That belongs only to God. He said, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he shall be saved. That belongs only to God. Jesus said uh, that you have to abide in him. That's something that only God could say. Jesus said, I'm the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, only things that God could say. So again, Teresa, I just want you to understand that Jesus did say that he was God and he said it in many different ways. Again, we'll include those uh, correlations of Yahweh in the Old Testament and Jesus in the New Testament, in the show notes as well, just these quick survey, not even a complete survey of the many ways that Jesus said that, in fact, he is God. So, Therese, let me summarize this for you. The Bible simply says that Jesus is God, that Jesus Christ has all the attributes of deity. Uh, He has those attributes of he's eternal, he's omnipresent, he's omniscient, he's omnipotent, and he's immutable or unchangeable. That's all the attributes of deity. And well, there's more attributes, but those are five basic ones. Jesus Christ is the creator of all things, of course, that Jesus Christ has the authority to forgive sins, that he will raise, and by the way, he also says that he will judge the dead at the end of time, and that the New Testament takes specific Old Testament references to Yahweh, and it applies them to Jesus Christ. Uh, Finally, I would say this jesus christ referred to himself in words and phrases that belong to god alone teresh that is a very basic a very incomplete explanation of the fact that the bible clearly says that jesus christ is god now as i said in the beginning we don't want this for a moment to take away from the parallel truth that jesus christ is also fully man fully god fully man, truly God and truly man. But as remarkable as it is to say, and I'll agree, it is a radical statement. It's a remarkable thing that a man who looked very much like you and I, walked this earth as a man, that he was and is in fact the eternal God, the creator of all things. So Tarish, yes, the Bible teaches these things. And I pray that as you continue to study God's word, And I'm so happy that my commentary at EnduringWord.com is a help to you in that. Uh, Keep on studying the Word, keep on studying the Bible, and God will show you in fullness and in greater clarity who Jesus Christ is. So that's it for our lead question today. Now I'm going to take a look at what uh, Devin has been sending me about the questions from our side chat today. We got a question from Jane, who says, why did Jesus tell some of the people he performed miracles on not to tell people and others he told to go and tell people. Jane, that's a great question. And let me say to us today, it seems a little bit strange that Jesus would say such a thing. I mean, why would Jesus, why wouldn't Jesus tell everybody, um, let it be known as widely as possible who I am and all the miracles i performed. But We have to understand that there was a very important and specific timing to the ministry of Jesus Christ. Jesus was in constant dependence upon his Father. He said, I don't do anything except the Father tells me to do it. So Jesus, in this position of constant dependence upon God the Father, he very deliberately knew that he had to do everything within the timing of God the Father. And being so zealous to keep that proper timing in all things, Jesus says, I'm going to do things in the timing. Now, what does that have to do with uh, when he would reveal these things? Well, because Jesus knew that there was a specific timing for when uh, he would be revealed as the Messiah to Uh, the people of God, to the community. And he did not want the messianic fervor to get ahead of itself. So uh, it was in order to respect the timing and to not allow the messianic excitement, the messianic uh, fervor around the presence of Jesus to uh, uh, make this Something far beyond what it should have been, as far as getting ahead of the timing that God had for him. So, again, hey, before I answer the next question, I do just want to give another welcome and a greeting to our audience from the TRW360 website. TRW Trans World Radio is a remarkable ministry that, again, for decades has been doing God's work, getting out the Word of God and great biblical teaching to the ends of the earth, literally, through shortwave radio and other means. And they also have an impressive and growing online ministry. And uh, we're very happy that this YouTube program is being done uh, in partnership and uh, sharing the platform of TRW 360. So God bless you uh, and all of our listeners and viewers coming to us from TRW. Okay, uh, let me go on to the next question that comes from Harpreet. Uh, Harpreet asks this question. I have a manager at work who's a practicing Muslim that claims Jesus is not God, but the messenger of God. I tried to talk to him a couple of times as he is struggling with generational curses. What would you share with him regarding his position? Well, Harpreet, that's a great question. And I know I answered a lot of it in the beginning, but let me just say this. If Jesus was only a messenger of God, if that were to be true, which is not true. Jesus tells us himself he's far more than a messenger of God. He is God himself. But if Jesus were only a messenger from God, then he spoke blasphemy because all the messengers of God directed people towards God. They directed people to trust in God himself, Uh, Jesus directed people to trust in him, which is a remarkable thing to do. Jesus told everybody that they needed to abide in him. Can you imagine such a thing? Jesus said, you have to abide in me if you're going to find salvation. Now, again, the great prophets or messengers of God never spoke in such a way. They spoke in such a way that always pointed the um, attention and the focus of people towards the coming work of God, the coming, the greater messenger of God or the greater Messiah of God to come. If Jesus was only a messenger, then he was wrong for telling people to trust in him, to abide in him, to have their confidence in him. So this is, again, a very, very important point that Jesus himself told people that they had to put their trust in him. Uh, The Bible exalts Jesus far, far above any way that it ever lifts up a mere messenger of God. Okay, so that's one way that you can explain to your manager at work. But regarding your manager's generational curses, don't be shy about telling your manager at work that Jesus Christ can free him from these generational curses, that such curses have no power before the authority of Jesus Christ, who's God's Messiah and the Son of God. He can be set free from such things in Jesus. So Harpreet, I hope that that is a help to you. And God bless you. Thank you for uh, bringing us that question. Jose asks, how can we know about God the Father? Are there any specific verses to read? Well, Jose, that's a very good question. How can we know more about God the Father? Uh, Jose, let me give you the thing that comes immediately to my own mind uh, for somebody who wants to know more about God the Father. I would express it simply as this. If you want to know more about God the Father, then the simple way to do that is to simply say, I'm going to study Jesus's relationship with God, specifically, of course, God the Father. Because God the Father is the one, is the aspect of God that Jesus himself dealt with. So it's good, it's valid, it's important for us to say, if I wanna know more about God the Father, then let me see how Jesus spoke to, related to, received from. Just start reading, Jose, carefully through the Gospels and taking a look at how Jesus responded to and dealt with God the Father. That's the first thing that comes to my mind as a way that you can learn more about God the Father in his specific person and attributes. Study closely the relationship that Jesus had with his God and Father. Okay, let me go on to the next question from Jesse. Jesse says, what does the Bible say about people who say that they are anointed? Is it right to tell uh, other people that we are anointed? Hey, you know, actually, uh, Jesse, I think that that is a tremendous question. Uh, are we anointed? And let me tell you, I think that the answer to that question is very simple. yes, You better believe that we are anointed. The Bible tells us in 1 John that you have an anointing. Again, I can't remember the specific chapter and verse right now. But in 1 John, John writes to us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he tells us that you have an anointing from God. Every Christian has an anointing. We shouldn't think that there are some Christians who have an anointing and some who don't. Now, the way that Christians kind of commonly use that phrase, the anointing, they refer it to some special individualistic thing that only some Christians have, that some have and that some don't, and that, you know, uh, you should give me some special honor or respect or, or deference because I have the anointing and you don't listen, don't think that way about the anointing of God. The Bible tells us that every Christian has an anointing. And I'm happy to tell you, Jesse, that if you are born again by God's Spirit, you have an anointing. Now, you could say that God gives different gifts to his people. That's absolutely true. Jesse, I don't know what your spiritual gifts are. I know that some of my spiritual gifts are the gift of teaching, the gift of preaching, uh, other sort of gifts that God gives me, uh, gift of encouragement maybe. But look, I, I just want you to know, Jesse, that you have spiritual gifts, but every believer has an anointing. Just look up that passage in 1 John, where he says to God's people that you have an anointing. This is true for all of the people of God. And uh, so the next time somebody comes to you and maybe tries to impress you or somebody else talking about their anointing, say, hey, I got an anointing too. All of us as God's children, we have an anointing. Look, there's a balance that we need to walk in the Christian life. Um, It is true that Bible says that teachers and preachers, leaders in God's church are worthy of respect. They're worthy of honor. Sometimes Paul even uses the phrase double honor That's true, but there aren't two classes in the Christian world. Some believers aren't better than others before God. No, no. The ground is level at the foot of the cross, and we thank God for that. So thank you for that question there, Jesse. Let me go on to the next question from Tyler. Uh, Tyler asks, can you give me some tips on how to share the gospel as a nurse at the hospital, especially... When your patients have to be the one to bring up the subject before you can talk about it. Tyler, this is a little bit difficult because I don't know the specific rules that are at your hospital or in the medical world in general. I I understand that on a professional basis, they don't want you to talk about religious things unless... Your patients bring it up first. But I'm wondering, I'm wondering if it would be permitted for you to say to your patients, hey, I just want you to know that I'm praying for you as well. Uh, that that may be, again, I I don't know if that's crossing the line, but it may be that that is a general enough statement that it would be permitted. And I think that would be a great introduction for you to mention to your patients that you are a person that has a, a spiritual incense, that you, Tyler, and I'm gonna assume you're, you're a man, that you uh, speak to this person as a man who uh, has a concern and a care for spiritual things, that you pray. And that might open the door for them to respond. So I, I would maybe run that by or look up in your hospital, whatever uh, professional code of conduct there is for you as a nurse at the hospital. But I I would think that that might be a uh, basic enough introduction to just get something started. Now, whether or not uh, they say you can say that you are praying for your patients, pray for your patients, pray, pray for them that God would bring healing and strength to their life, pray for them that God would save them and bring them to Jesus Christ and pray that God would open a door for them to initiate conversation. But Tyler, check on that. And I would be interested to know whether or not that's permitted for you to just say something as simple as that, hey, uh, I want you to know I'm praying for you. Okay, let me continue on here. Uh, Levy asks a question. I believe Jesus was God incarnate, but does someone have to believe that Jesus is God to be saved? What if someone believes that Jesus was just the son of God? Oh, Levy, as is common, because you ask really good questions, Levy. By the way, I I enjoy this, that we have quite a family here on Thursday afternoons, and that so many of you come back again and again. Uh, That's something that I really appreciate and value, so thank you. In any regard, uh, Levy, your question, simply to ask, uh, is it enough, must a person believe that Jesus is God in order to be saved? All right question's a little complicated. Now, a person can have an incomplete knowledge of Jesus and be saved. So, in order to be saved, someone must believe that Jesus is the Savior, the Messiah, the one who saves them. I, I regard that to be absolute minimum. And, and someone could believe that Jesus is is the Messiah, the Savior, perhaps without immediately knowing that he is also God. So a person can have an incomplete knowledge of Jesus and be saved. By the way, every one of us has to some degree an incomplete knowledge of Jesus. So maybe a person knows that Jesus is Messiah, they know Jesus is Savior, but they don't yet know that Jesus is God. That person could be saved. And a person does not have to have a perfect, a perfectly correct understanding of God to be saved, or of Jesus to be saved. Let's put it that specifically. You know, it is possible uh, for someone to make some mistake uh, in some of the technicalities of who Jesus is. For, For example, there has been debate in church history about how the two natures of the person of Jesus, uh, him being truly God and truly man, how do those two natures exist and coexist in Jesus? I mean, there is a correct biblical understanding on that. But if somebody is confused or incorrect about it, does that mean they're, they're not saved? Well, not necessarily. But let me put it to you this way, Levy a person cannot deny the truth about Jesus. So if a person denies that Jesus is God, I don't think they can be saved. And let me tell you why. It's not because getting to heaven is a matter of passing a theology test. (laughs) Oh, aren't we grateful for that? As if we're all in God's seminary and we're all given a great big exam And if you get the section of Jesus wrong in the exam, you're going to hell. No, it's not because God gives us a great big theological test as a prerequisite for us going to heaven. And if we miss one wrong answer, a certain wrong answer, then for sure we're going to hell. That's not why someone who denies that Jesus is God cannot be saved. It's because this, that a person who denies that Jesus is God doesn't know and put their trust in the biblical Jesus for their salvation. The only Jesus who can save is the Jesus who is revealed to us in God's word. And if somebody denies in some fundamental way the Jesus who is revealed to us in the Bible, then they're putting their trust in an imaginary Jesus, a Jesus who does not exist, and an imaginary Jesus cannot save you. So, a person cannot deny the truth of the deity of Jesus. Maybe they are not yet informed about that truth and they can be saved, but a person cannot deny the truth about Jesus, that he is God. So I hope that makes it clear to you. There is a difference between ignorance and denial. Um, There's a difference between confusion and denial, but certainly a person who denies that Jesus Christ is God, then any relationship with Jesus that they say they have is actually a relationship with an imaginary Jesus. So Levy, I, I hope that answers that question for you and thank you for it. Um, Jesse asks another question here. What is a good Bible dictionary? Is there a difference between Vine's dictionary and Nelson's illustrated Bible dictionary? Well, uh, Jesse, the Bible dictionary that I have enjoyed, and I'm looking back here on my shelf to see if I can see it. The Bible dictionary I have enjoyed the most... Now, again, this is kind of old, published by Tyndale, the New Bible Dictionary. Uh, But, you know, there's a lot of good Bible dictionaries out there. I don't know if I would say that there is a real difference between Nelson's Bible Dictionary or Vine's Dictionary. By the way, I'm not really sure Vine's had a Bible dictionary. I'm most familiar with Vine's topical Bible. But whatever, I mean, most of the standard ones out there are good. Again, I've had a preference for the New Bible Dictionary. Um, Most people are looking up this information online, but there's something great about looking it up in a physical book. And uh, what this does is this takes people and books of the Bible and objects. Uh, Here's a diagram of different things that you could just look at, new Bible dictionary. Something like this takes words and ideas and books of the Bible and just gives them a dictionary explanation and definition Uh, from the scriptures. So Jesse, that's the one I recommend most readily, the one that I have found most useful in my own uh, study of God's word. Uh, Rami asks a question, are there plans to translate enduring word to Dutch? Well, Rami, that is a great question. I, I have to be very straightforward with you, Rami. That is not in our plans as of now. And let me explain to you why. We are prioritizing the uh, most spoken languages in the world. It's pretty simple. You just take a look at what are the most spoken languages in the world uh, among these um, English, Chinese, Arabic uh German is in there. Spanish is certainly in there. Portuguese is in there. Italian is in there. French is in there. We are prioritizing. Hindi is in there, and we're beginning uh, translation projects in Hindi. We just got back uh, my commentary on the Gospel of Luke translated into Hindi, and hopefully before too long, we'll have that up on our website. So We're trying to be very strategic in prioritizing the work in the most spoken languages. However, if there are people who on a volunteer basis would like to help with the work of translating and proofreading my commentary into the Dutch language, I would be thrilled. Listen, there's no language that I don't want to have my commentary translated in but we have to wisely and prayerfully allocate resources. So here's our priority for resources in the most spoken languages of the world, as I've just mentioned, and certain strategic languages. So here are two strategic languages that we're putting some focus on right now in translation, Farsi and the Kurdish languages. God is doing a remarkable work among uh, Persian believers, those who speak Farsi. And God is also doing a remarkable work among uh, Kurdish-speaking peoples right now. Because we see the great work of God happening among them, that sort of gets our notice when we say, Let's work on translating our resources into those languages as well. So, again, Romeo, I hope that helps you, and God bless you. Uh, We have many friends uh, in the Netherlands and uh, those who come from Dutch heritage. Uh, It's remarkable to think of the great heritage that Dutch-speaking people have uh, for the kingdom of God, and I'm excited to see what God is doing in the Netherlands. So, thank you for that. Victoria has a question and says... I was told that we are in the dispensation of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? So who do we pray for? Well, Victoria, the idea of there being a dispensation of the Holy Spirit, it really all depends on how you define that. Because uh, that could be understood in a very wrong way. Let, let me kind of give you the wrong way that that's been understood and explained. And I, I would even say that this is a heretical way. Uh, there is a teaching out there among some people, some people call them the oneness teaching. Uh, it's also called by other names, not church history, but a but, uh, modalism is another uh, question that God has existed in different modes. In other words, that there's not a trinity of one God in three persons that exist together at the same time, but rather they say, first, God was manifested in the mode of God the Father. Then second, he was manifested in the mode of God the Son. And now he is manifested in the mode of God the Holy Spirit. But never has God existed, either in the past or now, in all three persons at the same time. You see, the teaching of the Trinity teaches us that there's one God, don't miss that, there's not three gods, there's one God in three persons, but simultaneously. Now, if someone means by the dispensation of the Spirit that God is no longer God the Father, that's not what the Bible teaches. If someone means by the dispensation of the Holy Spirit that God is no longer God the Son, that's not what the Bible teaches. So if someone means it in that sense, we'd say, no, 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 stay away from it. But if by the dispensation of the Holy Spirit, they mean that God's presence and work on earth at the present time, and since Jesus ascended to heaven is primarily and most uh, pointedly focused on the person and work of the Holy Spirit in the midst of us, Yet that is a sense in which it could be said that we are in a dispensation of the Holy Spirit, that uh, Jesus is not bodily present on earth, but rather when he ascended to heaven, as he promised he would do, he sent the Holy Spirit to uh, work in and through the people of God, and it's the presence of the Holy Spirit. Now, if that's what someone means by that, then... Uh, uh, th- then we can understand, yes, we are in the dispensation of the Holy Spirit. Now, who do we pray for? Well, since God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit exist eternally and at the present time, then it's very easy for us just to say this. We fundamentally, we pray to God the Father through the mediation, the access, the the uh, the entree given to us by God the Son, with the inspiration and the empowering of the Holy Spirit. That is the primary means of prayer, but we shouldn't think that it's wrong to worship or pray to God the Son, Jesus Christ, or that it's wrong to worship and pray to God the Holy Spirit. Uh, Again, this is a matter of emphasis. Primarily the pattern for prayer given to us in the Word is that we pray to God the Father, through the mediation of God, the Son, through the inspiration and the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Yet uh, that isn't like a absolute law. It's just more of an emphasis given to us in the scriptures. So again, Victoria, thank you for your question. I hope that's helpful for you. Continuing on, we've got a question from West. Uh, It says, is speaking in tongues the evidence of the spirit in one's life? If not, what's your proof? Okay, West, uh, thank you for that question. Is speaking in tongues the evidence of the Spirit in one's life? No, it is not the evidence of the Holy Spirit in one's life. Now, it is true that there are a few times in the book of Acts where the fact that someone spoke with the gift of tongues was and evidence that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. So I'm trying to say that there's, I'm not trying to say that there is no connection between evidence of the Holy, being filled with the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues. There's some evidence. What I would strongly protest is the idea that it is the evidence of someone being filled with the Holy Spirit. That is something that the Bible does not teach, and I think that it is a teaching that has done considerable damage among God's people. Let me explain to you what I mean. If we regard speaking in tongues as being the evidence of being filled with Holy Spirit, how do I know I'm filled with Holy Spirit? The only way I can know for sure is if I speak in tongues. That is a dangerous and a damaging doctrine because of the practical effect that it has. It has a very bad practical effect. I'll explain why. Its bad practical effect is it leads people to seek the gift of tongues to prove something. Either I need to prove to myself that I'm really filled with Holy Spirit. I need to prove to other people who are praying for me that I'm really filled with Holy Spirit. Because of this desire to prove something to somebody, it compels people to oftentimes fake the gift of tongues. Now, I'll have you know that even though there are dear, valuable brothers and sisters in the body of Christ today, many of them who disagree with me on this, I do believe that the gift of tongues is for today. And I'm not trying to get into a debate about that specific thing here now. But even though I believe that the gift of tongues is for today, I also believe that it can be faked. Uh, That that it can be presented in a false way. It, It can be counterfeited, so to speak. And that is something that we should endeavor with all our heart to avoid. So, we never want to put somebody in a position where they feel compelled in any way to fake the gift of tongues in order to prove something to somebody, themselves or somebody else. Now, West, you ask a very good question. Then what is the evidence of being filled with Holy Spirit? Very plainly, it's the fruit of the Spirit. You look up in the New Testament, in those passages in which it describes the fruit of the Holy Spirit brother West, that is the evidence of being filled with the Holy Spirit. By the way, I just called you brother West. I don't know if you're a man or a woman, but again, that is the evidence of being filled with the Holy Spirit, whether or not the fruit of the Spirit is evident in your life. Brothers and sisters, we need to realize That if we want to look for true evidence of God's filling and God's work in our life, we would be far better giving attention to the fruit of the Spirit than we would be giving attention to gifts of the Spirit or, uh, you know, spectacular things of the Spirit. No, the real evidence to look for is the fruit of the Spirit. So I hope that's helpful for you there, West. Next question comes from... uh, Sushma, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Sushma says, why did Jesus fulfill the desire of legion when he asked to enter the body of pigs? Wow. Uh, Susha, that's a very good question. Why did Jesus fulfill the desire of legion when he asked to enter the body of a pig? What you're speaking of, of course, is this occasion in the gospels having to do with a person that we call normally the Gadarene demoniac. It was a person who was severely possessed by a demon or demons, could have been multiple, uh, because he uh, was out of his right mind. He was violent to himself and towards others. He was, as a a song I I enjoy from a man named... uh, How come I can't remember? um, Oh, good. Bob. Anyway, this this song calls this man, the man of the tombs. Uh, He was chained. He was bound. He was out of his right mind. And when Jesus came and confronted this demonic entity or entities, plural, in the man, uh, Jesus was determined to cast the demon or demons out of the man, and the demons begged that they would not be sent to the abyss, uh, that they would still be permitted to be on earth inhabiting some kind of thing. And they said, cast us into these pigs. And Jesus did so. Now, Shushma, your question is, why? Why did Jesus do that? Poor, poor pigs. Well, I, I've got a suggestion for you. Jesus did that because the Jewish People who were keeping those pigs were doing so against God's law. Pigs, of course, are not kosher, and they shouldn't be keeping kosher. Uh, and and they, I, what I mean is that those Jewish people should have been keeping kosher, and they weren't, because they were keeping pigs. And Jesus did this to kind of solve two problems. <laughs> the one problem was freeing the gathering demoniac of the demon or demons that he had. Uh, and the second solution was to bring a correction to this community of Jewish people that was not observing God's kosher dietary laws and to drive out the pigs. So I believe Jesus was addressing two problems with that. There may have been, no doubt were, many other reasons for that that I can't put my finger on. Uh, But in the wisdom of Jesus Christ, which is the wisdom of God, he actually uh, put those demons in those pigs and the pigs rushed off a cliff and drowned themselves in the sea. So again, I I hope that's helpful for you there. Shushma. Um, Next question comes from Ham. Ham asks the question, is the COVID vaccine the mark of the beast? Well, uh, Ham, thank you for that question. And let me just simply say, No, I can answer that very straightforwardly. No, the COVID vaccine is not the mark of the beast. And I can tell you the reason why. When we take a look at the book of Revelation and what it has to say about uh, the mark of the beast, we know that number one, that no one can buy or sell without that mark. And To this time, of course, there has been no link uh, connecting economic activity to the vaccine. Uh, Not in any direct way. Uh, Of course, in a general way, people say if people don't take the vaccine, economies won't get back on track, but no direct way. But more importantly than that, the book of Revelation also connects the receiving of the mark of the beast together with worship of the beast, the Antichrist, this uh, charismatic and successful world ruler of the very last days. That world ruler will demand worship and the mark of that worship, the mark that someone has worshiped the beast will be receiving the mark of the beast. There is no such connection between the vaccine and that. Now, I will say this. That there are people who suggest that the mark, uh, the, the current vaccine that people are required or, well, look, it, where I live in the United States, the vaccine is not required. It's, it's recommended, but it's not required. But there, uh, th- there is no connection between uh, the worship of an individual or the government of a requirement for economic activity. Even though people say, and this is getting back to the previous point, that what people are recommended to receive today in the vaccine is actually a preparation for a later Mark of the Beast. Um, I'm I'm telling you, that may be the case. I'll just be straightforward with you. That might be the case. Uh, And so people should be aware of that. People should be aware, oh... Uh, something like this, but in a greater and more severe degree, uh, will come later or can come later, uh, the Bible tells us. I say can come because it may or may not be in our own day, but it will come eventually. So uh, we could say that the vaccine that people receive and the whole vaccine regime um, is preparation for that. But I, I do not think that it is the mark of the beast at all. Okay, let me go on to the next question from um, Amanda. Uh, Amanda says, ask this question. Hold on. Um, After reading 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 15, I understand that women are not to be pastors of churches. Is that correct? Well, Amanda... That is my understanding of that passage in 1 Timothy chapter 2. I believe that it's saying there that women should not be in positions of doctrinal or teaching authority over men, and I believe that that would exclude women from that position of being lead pastor, preaching pastor, or even ruling elders at a church. Now, I want you to understand very carefully, I do believe that the Bible does not prohibit preaching, teaching, evangelism from women. The whole matter is in what sphere should they exercise those gifts? If God has given a woman a gift of preaching or teaching, she should exercise that gift. But in what sphere that should be exercised? In what arena? That should be done in obedience to God's word, and it should not be over a congregation in general. Now I have a teaching on this, and we'll include a link a link to that teaching. It's in some depth. Uh, we'll include a link to that uh, in the show notes, where I go through that uh, First Timothy passage very carefully. But that's my understanding. Now I, I often get the question back from people. Well, David, what what are you saying then to people who have? Because listen, I understand that there are Christians from many different backgrounds, and and some of them have no problem with a woman being in teaching authority, a woman being a pastor. Uh, I have no doubt that I'm speaking to some people right now. Uh, Maybe you are a woman pastor over a congregation or uh, you attend a church that has a woman pastor over a congregation. You say, well, David, what would you say to them? Here's what I would say. I would say, number one, I don't believe that you're doing as God's word instructs and that in the long term, it's not good for the body of Christ to do this. It's never good for God's people to not obey what God says. However, I will say this in a secondary way. You're not my enemy. Your obedience or disobedience in this matter is between you and God. So I Again, I I understand that not everyone in God's family is persuaded to my understanding of the biblical texts. I I think they should be because I think I understand this correctly. But, But ultimately, you don't answer to me. You answer to God. And you will answer to God for this. So I do think that what you're doing, if you are a woman pastor of a congregation, that in the long term, it's not good for the body of Christ and it's not obedient to God's word. But ultimately, look, you're not my enemy. I'm not your opponent in that sense. Uh, You stand or fall before God, and you should just take that to God and think about it and listen to the uh, message that I did and link in the show notes. And you should at least deal with um, good arguments that, that Are held by those who disagree with you. I've tried to do that to the very best of my understanding in these matters, and I think every Christian should do so. Okay, we're coming up near to the top of the hour. I'm gonna take one more question. Hey, listen, if your question has come in and we haven't taken the time to answer it, I'm sorry. We make note of the questions that we do not get to, and we hope to answer them another time. Please join us. Maybe you join us a little bit earlier next Thursday when we do this program again. You can get your question in earlier. But normally we keep the question and answer time to about an hour total. And we're looking forward to next week to getting into again. But I'm gonna answer one more question that comes from H.C. Uh, How do you deal with a boss who does not like you because you believe in Jesus? Oh, well, first of all, H.C., you have all my sympathy. Um, that's a tough situation to be in. But please understand this, that if you are being persecuted for righteousness sake, then the Bible says the first thing you should do is rejoice because you're being faithful to God and uh, you are following in the footsteps of many godly people in the world today and, of course, in centuries past. Now, I said that you're enduring this disfavor from your boss is persecution. Some people might object to that. And let me just explain carefully what I mean. H.C., I do believe that if you have disfavor from your boss because you are a Christian, you are being persecuted, but it's a very mild form of persecution. I mean, thank the Lord that you're not being persecuted in more severe ways like many of our brothers and sisters all over the world are being persecuted in severe and difficult ways and of course have been throughout history our hearts go out to them our prayers go out for them but we shouldn't think that just because persecution is mild that it's not persecution okay it is persecution but it's mild persecution the disfavor of a boss for the sake of Christ is persecution mild but real so rejoice, number one. Secondly, H.C., I would say, do your very best to ensure that this persecution is coming truly because you're representing Jesus Christ. Peter, in his letter, speaks of those uh, who aren't being persecuted because they're doing wrong, but because they're doing right make sure you're not being persecuted because you're doing wrong. Now, H.C., I'm not trying to say that this applies to you, but let's just make a hypothetical situation. Let's think of of a let's pretend or hypothetical situation of someone who isn't doing their work, but spends all day at their desk reading their Bible when they should be doing their work. And then when their boss gets on them for it, they say, oh, I'm being persecuted. Well, no. What God would say to that believer is, why not you put your Bible away and read it on your own time and give your employer an honest day's work. So any Christian who's experiencing disfavor from their boss needs to, first of all, rejoice. Secondly, be diligent to make sure that you're not enduring this because you're not working well. Try to be the best worker you can be. But then number three, pray for your boss. Pray for your supervisor. Jesus told us, that we should pray for those who persecute us and spitefully use us, treat us, I should say. And so, uh, yes, bring those prayers before God, pray for their conversion, pray for their soul, pray that God would use your faithfulness and joy, even in the midst of a season of persecution to be a real demonstration of uh, God's love and God's power. So I hope that helps you there, HC. All right, well, again, That's gonna be it for today's questions. I wanna say thank you once again to Devin, our moderator, to our whole Enduring Word team. I am so pleased that you could join us today. Thank you for the crew at TRW 360. We're very pleased that so many of you could join us today. And we're gonna be back here next Thursday, 12 noon Pacific, West Coast, United States time. I hope you can join us, bring your questions, And it's wonderful to have this time together with you. God bless you. Go to our Bible resources at enduringword.com. I've got a written commentary on the entire Bible in English, in Spanish. The New Testament commentary is available in Arabic and Chinese, and we have portions available in many languages, and it continues to grow because God has a heart for the whole world, and I hope you do too. God bless you. Thank you for joining us. And we'll see you again next Thursday. God bless you. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.